time so I can get the recording going. Hi, this is the Writer's Chat for January the 23rd, and this is sort of a, uh, a field test of a totally different setup with OBS and some different stuff, so there's no music today. Hopefully, it's just audio and it, it sounds okay. If you are uh, here in chat, hello, chat. Uh, let me know if the audio sounds right. I tweaked literally everything trying to figure out um, how to how to make it better. So hopefully I've done that. I'm, I'm pleased about it. it. It looks stable on my end, but I don't know how it sounds. So please let me know how it sounds. And we're going to get right to the uh, the start of it. That's not the right label. Why is it saying that? All right. The thing is telling me that it's listed for every sentence as a camera, which is the chat that didn't pop off. But uh, my end says it's totally fine. So whatever. Here I am. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, cat boys, cat girls, game enthusiasts, scientists, pretend scientists, truth seekers, court watchers, court listeners, basketball lovers, anybody who's ever owned a bicycle, people who enjoy cookies, people who enjoy other snack foods, anybody who knows not to leave empty milk containers in the fridge, people who generally consider themselves to be good house guests, the lonely, the depressed, the bored, the disinterested, anybody who's ever caught a good case of the I don't wanna's, the uh, people who perennially get stuck in the middle of their first draft so they just rewrite things, and most importantly, the comrades. Hey, hi, it's nice to be here in your eyes and in your ears one more time. I'm John. Hello. Uh, and if you have no idea what this is, this is the writer's chat for January 23rd. Yes, the date really is one, two, three. Uh, that amused me for about three seconds today. And then apparently like 15 other people told me it was one, two, three, and it quickly became unappealing. But Aside from that, I hope you out there are doing well and having a fine and nice day. I'm surviving. The day is flying by. I don't know if it's if it's just me or if it's just you, but oh wow, flying by. I I really feel like I was I was doing some work at like 9 a.m. and then I I went to the bathroom and I came back and the next thing I know it's five minutes to one and I have no idea where the day went, but I know I got stuff done. So here we are for the writer's chat after a expedient day, and hopefully everything is working. Hopefully nothing is crashing. Hopefully everything is going well. Uh, I don't see any indications otherwise. Now, of course, this is OBS, so I've lost some of the bells and whistles I normally enjoy. But in theory, I've traded those bells and whistles for, you know, stable recording and a high quality. So we'll see. We'll find out together. And we'll do that by answering. Sounds good? Oh, that makes me happy. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. I'm I'm really very happy. Thank you. That oh after last so before we get started, here's the here's the quick rundown about last week. I was supposed to do this big giant thing called Every Sentence is a Camera, which is sort of like the thing I'm known for. And I went to go do it and I just could not get the sound working. It sounded like I was both in a wind tunnel and working a drive-through window at a bad fast food restaurant. And it was intermittent. 
And no matter what I did and how I did it, the sound was off and I was immediately pissed because I, on my end, I hear me and I sound awesome all the time. That's not just my ego. I'm telling you, I don't hear the sound that you hear. And I was rocking and rolling and it was going great. And I was like 15, 20 minutes in when somebody pointed out, hey, your sound sucks. And it threw me off for the rest of the night. I was angry and frustrated and I ended up chopping up every sentence as a camera three. You can hear it all this week over on the podcast feed, but um, I'm so glad, so glad that my audio sounds delightful, peachy keen, because now we're going to do some stuff. So here we go. One step at a time on to some questions to get us some answers. Question number one. Why don't more sources of writing advice agree with each other? Now, there's more to this question I chopped off because otherwise the question itself would fill the whole screen. And it basically says with all the things you can Google, with all the blogs you can go to, with all the YouTube videos you can watch, et cetera, et cetera. Why isn't everybody agreeing? We've been talking writing advice forever. Why isn't everybody more or less synced up? And here's the reason why. Actually, I'll give you two reasons why. Item number one, there's a lot to creativity that's still very, very subjective. Even though we like to think it's very objective, if you do X, you will do right and do well and do good. But if you don't do X, whatever the hell X is, you are, you know, bad or wrong or it's going to go poorly or whatever. And we try to make these very binary terms. Do this, don't do that. The problem is, the subjective part is, we don't agree on what to do and not do. We can't agree on what the ideal word count of a thing is or what the best universal example of a good practice or a poor practice is because at the end of the day, we don't have to agree to like it. We can both read a book, you and I, and it. I think that book might be absolute garbage and you might look at that book and go, it changed my life, John. And that's the sort of thing that makes this flexible. And then when we extrapolate that out and we start looking at other pieces of writing advice, we realize that degree of variation in response means that there's probably also possibly a degree of variation in how somebody can explain it to you. Because if I tell you that, uh, let's see, that mood is like air we breathe, we can't see it, but it's pervasive, you might go, oh, that makes sense. But somebody else might go, I don't know what you're talking about. So step number one or part number one, we're trying to make the subjective very objective. And because of that, uh, we run into a lot of disagreements. Here's item number two, a bit more in my wheelhouse than that. Uh, a lot of people who give writing advice suck. They just suck. They're out to get your money. They don't really want you to improve. They just want you coming back to them for more and more answers. They, they will dangle like a, like a carrot on a stick. They will dangle it out in front of you and say, oh, well, you just, you just got to come back. You just got to listen more. You just got to subscribe. You just got to buy this course. You just got to come check this thing out. You just got to do this one thing that I have. And they always seem to have a new product. And they always seem to have a new thing to tell you how great they are at it. And they always tell you how much easier they can make doing whatever you're going to be doing. But if their idea was so good and they were so successful, 
no matter what, why aren't they telling you? If they're so brilliant at it, why not give part of it away for free? Like most of it away for free. Why not give all of it away for free? They're so good at it, they can guarantee you results. This should be easy for them. Because there's loads of other steps to talk about. If they can tell you how to get traditionally published, then tell them, tell people how to do that, and then they can come back to you for the long-term marketing strategy. Just, if they were so smart, give it away. If they were so smart, why hasn't it been leaked? If they knew exactly how to do everything, you don't, you don't think information shows up. People, somebody yesterday posted an entire SpongeBob movie on Twitter. Like, word gets out all the time. So why, why isn't there advice everywhere? If they're so good, everybody would do it. You don't think that if somebody came along with perfect advice, I wouldn't quit this job in a minute, tell you to go follow them, and I'd go do other things that make me happy during the day? Absolutely, but I, I like doing this. And the reason why other people don't do this, and we'll talk about this in a later question, is because they like getting paid more than they like helping you. It's really something to think about when you go running off to sign up to the next newsletter or giving up your email address to get the next freebie download or anything like that. People don't agree because they're not interested in giving you help. They're interested in obtaining your information so that they can profit in some way. It's really a problem in this industry. On we go, though. To question number two, a technical one. How do I start planning a sequel? Okay. There's some stuff to talk about. First of all, are we making a continued sequel or a direct sequel? Here's the difference. A direct sequel picks up exactly where the first book leaves off, involves the exact same people, and it usually deals with the direct consequences from the stuff that happened in the first book. It's basically just picking up and moving forward from that exact moment. That's a direct sequel. A continued sequel uses some of the same characters from the first book, but now we're going to do something entirely different. You probably, when you think about sequels, you tend to think about continued sequels where you have a, a, a detective solving a crime in book one, and then they're on a different case in book two, or our hero journeys to one place in, in book one and goes somewhere else in book two, even though place one and place two are are relatively tied together by a series plot. Is there a functional difference beyond that, though? Is one automatically better than the other? No. Uh, if you want a, a great example of this, there's uh, James Bond, the movie franchise. Mostly does continued sequels. It's another James Bond movie doing another thing, finding another villain, etc., etc. Rarely, very rarely, and really just once that I'm aware of, did they do a, a direct sequel where the movie, uh, I think it was Skyfall to Quantum of Solace, where uh, we end Skyfall, you know, uh, basically kneecapping a dude, and then we begin Quantum of Solace, chucking that dude in the trunk of the car, and then moving forward. One is not better than the other, and honestly, the reason to do a direct sequel is because you want to definitely talk about the consequences from the first book. There's more to say, and you couldn't entirely fit it in the first book. You wanted to give it its own room to breathe, so you just did more. 
but most of the time, a continued sequel using the characters but putting them in different circumstances is just as effective and it's actually freeing because it liberates you from the stuff from the first book. It's over, it's done with, now we're going to do a new thing. After we make that distinction, though, we still have more stuff to plan because a sequel is more than just same characters, new book, who dis. It's more a matter of, well, how much, and I'm going to give you a my technical term for thing as opposed to the technical technical term because the technical term is a little racist. Um, it's repetition rate. It's the idea of how much of the previous book am I going to require you to know in advance versus how much I'm willing to tell you about over the course of this book. One of the really bad problems you run into is that people think they have to like take a moment in the beginning of the book, like in the first 20 to 30 pages and quickly recap often poorly the events of the first book all at once, just one big glob, drop it in the middle of the text. And that's it. Okay, you're caught up to speed. Now we're going to go forward. This is an ineffective way of handling the problem. It just doesn't work well. Because let's say your book is, I don't know, 100,000 words. If you're dedicating 400 of them to recapping the first book and you're only doing it in like two paragraphs in chapter two, you are expecting me to read 93% of the rest of the book and remember these 400 or so words. What you want to do is treat the recap, the repetition of information, like croutons in a salad or butter on toast. We want to spread it out all over the space, a little bit here and a little bit there, so that by the time we get to a certain point in the second book, and that point is entirely set by you, But by the time we get to a certain point in the second book, we've covered the important stuff because, we again, if we want all the details, we'll go read the first book. But we've covered the important stuff so that now the second book can carry on forward. You don't want to do it over the entire book because you're going to end up in a situation where info from the first book competes with info from the second book for attention. Not so much in a confusing way, but more like a what's the important thing you want me to figure out kind of way, which is common and fixable. The fix for that is to kind of restrict, uh, sort of like put a line of last return. Do not cross this line with first book information. And generally you want that no farther or no deeper into the book than the midpoint of Act 2, the halfway point of Act 2. However, once we figure out how much we're going to recap book one, we then have to do all the stuff we would normally do planning a sequel or planning any book that isn't a sequel is probably the easier way to say it. You've got to come up with your theme. You've got to come up with your plot. You've got to find your conflict. You have to figure out, and this gets a little tricky now, what new element you are going to affect in the character arc because you really can't do the character arc from the first book over again. You did it already. Repeating it, would weaken it. So you've got to find a new facet or a new approach or a new way of handling it. You can deepen it. Like let's say you have a character in the first book who gets sober or who gets clean, right? In the second book, you can't start that journey from scratch unless you have an event that sort of resets the progress. But you can test that sobriety. You can do something to further develop the challenge of staying sober. 
you don't have to tread the same ground twice. Finding your character arc for a second book or a third book or a fifth book isn't so much about always looking too deep in the existing information, although that can be helpful. It's about finding a new facet or a new dimension of the character to explore so that when the reader reads the whole series, even if it's just two books, but when the reader reads the whole series, we can composite that character's depth overall. You don't always have to keep mining the same stretch of space. Past that, you are just telling a story. Plot, character, world building, theme, construction, on we go. Whether we do it in three, four, or five acts, up to you. Whether we split our climaxes or roll things around, up to you. But by and large, after a certain point, a sequel just turns into another book. There's a question in chat that I would love to pull up on screen, but I lack that ability. Is there a particular reason why so few YA contemporaries have sequels? I'm assuming it's sales potential. Yes, sales. Oh, hi. Yes, hi. Sales potential is a definite issue. So it's important to point out for our traditional publishing people, planning your sequel if your first book is not selling well is possibly a wasted exercise it's just it's it's just not gonna do a thing i'm gonna press that button just to give that a minute um because traditional publishing lives and dies by sales numbers they might sign you to a deal for two three however many books but if that first book doesn't hit the number or if the first two books sell well but the third one doesn't don't plan on a fourth or If the second one doesn't do well, don't plan on a third. Sales determine sequel viability. Even if the narrative idea is amazing, you'll never get to explore it under that book contract because you didn't get the sales numbers. That's one of the big downsides in traditional publishing. You are very sales dependent. Really, the only other reason for that or the other reason why they don't really push sequels anymore is because there there's that move away from serialization where everybody was like, I need to have a series like Harry Potter, like Percy Jackson. There needs to be big, long series and lots of planning so we can lock an author in. The problem is a lot of people tried to do that and they sucked at it. They just sucked at it. They went in unprepared. They went in kind of half cocked. And so the, there had to be this extra like architecture to suddenly turn a book that really didn't have sequel potential into a sequel or into a series. So it, it didn't sell well because it wasn't built to be more than a single book. And then over time, they realized that individual books caught on. And what you ended up with, instead of big giant series, you ended up with what are now being called world series, not the baseball thing. But a, a, a serialized world is one world, whatever it might be, fantasy, cyberpunk, whatever. Romance is absolutely over the moon for this. You get one city, one town, one space, and then you have a lot of little stories underneath it. Uh, the example I always give is one I worked on where there was a town and 
every neighborhood or every house or a couple houses on a couple different blocks were different stories that took place in this neighborhood. One book was these two people. One other book was those two people. Another book were those three people, et cetera, et cetera. So that you never had to follow, you know, those two same people over and over and over again, but you were always staying in the same places, always doing the same kind of stuff, just with different folks. It's a thing. It's a choice, but to take it back to the question, it's going to be, at least in a traditional sense, very, 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 very sales dependent. If you're doing this yourself, if you're doing and going out on your own and, and self-publishing or putting this out serialized on coffee or rolling it out on Patreon or Substack or whatever, you don't have to worry about that. That won't fucking matter to you. It shouldn't matter to you. Instead, just craft the best story you can. Great questions. On we go. I am really loving the fact that I can just press a button and it works again as opposed to like press a button and kind of cross my fingers and hope. So I'm very satisfied. Now, question number three. Do any of your clients deal with really bad writer's block? Yes. Yeah. I can think of five off the top of my head who are so jammed up with writer's block I haven't talked to them in months. One of them I haven't talked to in years. The last time I checked in with them, I got a message of, yeah, I'm still stuck, more or less. Writer's block is a thing. I do, if you head over to the to the website, uh, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com, I do offer like a whole special hour you can book where we're just going to talk about your writer's block. Talk about why you're blocked. Talk about what you can do about it. How did it start? Why do you think it's hanging out the way it is? Why do you, like, what do you do to try to fight it? All the writer's block stuff gets lumped into a writer's block kind of session. It's a special kind of coaching. But yeah, I get clients with writer's block. People come to me specifically for writer's block. I'm kind of good at getting people unblocked. Not always. I'm not perfect at it. But yeah, writer's block is a thing. Um, writer's block comes in many forms, whether it's I've started a thing and I got stuck midway through at some point and I can't finish it, or I finished a thing but I can't seem to make myself go forward, or most commonly recently, I want to start a thing and I haven't started it yet because, 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 because loads of reasons. So yeah. There's, there's definitely a, a common ground. I can't say it's everybody. I've got a lot of clients who have not dealt with writer's block either because they're constantly busying themselves. I have my next book planned. I got the next thing. And what about this? And what about that? And other people just never experience it for any number of reasons. If you are somebody out there who's experiencing it, you're, you're not broken. You're not bad. You're not wrong. You're just going through a thing. We can talk about it. It's okay. It will pass. I do want to caution you, though. There are some people out there in the world who actually don't want it to pass. They like the idea of it. They, they like being able to say they're blocked, to sort of give them a breather from the pressure they were putting on themselves to do the thing they wanted to do. It's a, it's a little cranky vacation where they can blame the writer's block for not getting stuff done while also giving themselves a chance to not really do the work it would take to recover. They get to stay stuck and then talk about it. That's a thing. It's worth considering. So that said, yeah, clients get writer's block. It happens. 
being a coaching client or an editing client or both does not suddenly make your world a super magic perfect place. It just makes it a better place. On we go. Are there any questions? And I see the little notification over here that chances are if you're not currently uh, a subscriber, uh, you're going to get an ad in like 20 seconds. So heads up ad people. I have no idea what ad it is. I kind of hope it's like, I don't know, something fun, amusing, like root beer or steno pads or bathrobes. But, oh, it's I'm sorry. It's not in 20 seconds. It's a minute and 10 seconds. So buckle up for that. Let me know what ad you get. I'm always curious because I have no idea. I have no control over them. I can more or less just run them. But I let me know. I'm, I'd be really curious. Are there, however, any questions from anybody here in chat? About anything. Doesn't matter. Oh, man. It would also be great if the, the ad was for something like really mundane, like tuna fish or pencils. I wonder if I can influence that. I wonder if I can like say enough words to prompt some algorithm to just throw ads there because I've said it so much, but I've got to do it probably in like regular conversations. So like, oh man, I was having lunch the other day and I, I really just really wanted some potato chips. Now I'm not supposed to have any potato chips, but you know, I got to, I got to confess I, I totally had some potato chips. So we'll see. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Shall we keep moving? I don't know how long the ad break is. I only know when it's starting. It's a terrible peek behind the curtain, I know. But shall we keep moving? Let's. Question number four. What is narrative risk. Okay. There's authorial risk and narrative risk. Authorial risk is you, the person, the human, trying to do a thing you've never done before. I'm going to try writing a book. I'm going to get on TikTok. I'm going to write a post. I'm going to write the back cover blurb for my book. Stuff I've never done before that I'm going to do that should, in theory, when it works, help my authorial career is authorial risk. Narrative risk. Oh, it's telling me that my ad break ends in a minute and change. Neat. Was I talking during the break? Yeah, I was talking during the break. Did I delete the... Hang on a second. Stay right there. We're going to go backwards a second. Oh. Yeah. Nope. I know what the problem was. I, I turned the... That's my bad. That's my bad, everybody. I I turned the microphone thing. Yeah. Sorry about that. Anyway, ads, potato chips, other stuff happening. I lost my train of thought. We're going back now. We're going forward. Here we go. Authorial risk is the stuff you do to advance your authorial career. It's because I deleted the audio input from OBS because I clicked the wrong button because I'm a dork. So um, authorial risk advances your authorial career. Narrative risk, which is what the question is asking about, narrative risk has to do with your characters doing stuff in the story. 
what's going to be a challenge for them? What's going to be uh, a thing that's dangerous or possibly rewarding to them? Most authors struggle like a lot, a lot with narrative risk. The idea that your character could be in danger, the idea that your character might have to break a sweat, the idea that your character could get hurt, the idea that your character won't be perfect is a thing that I think freaks out a lot of authors because it's it's hard. They have some kind of extra strange emotional bond to their character where they don't want to see them hurt because that's bad or it makes them less cool if if they don't do everything awesomely or something. Narrative risk is what allows the reader to relate to the character because the reader, you know, the person to whom you are providing the story, the reader's life is imperfect. The reader is imperfect. That's that's a thing. So um, when you can, uh, whenever possible, I should say, risk stuff in your story. Your character is trying to overcome a conflict. Your character is trying to do something that is hard for them. That's why we have an arc at all. So there's going to be and there should be some kind of risk. The plot has risk in it, but the plot by itself should not be the only risk the character faces. Oh my God, I have to save the kingdom from the dragon. Yeah, that's a risk, but everything else is just going to kind of stay as is. It's not very exciting because anytime we talk about something that isn't the kingdom or the dragon, the story is just going to be kind of ho-hum, a little bit dull. We don't want that. Narrative risk is really valuable because it allows us to care about the character. It allows us to see that what they're doing is difficult for them. And it allows you from a, from a writing standpoint to also talk about things like theme or explore the character's backstory or their internal construction, their thinking, their feelings, because it won't just be everything I do is easy and I don't really have to work very hard because after a while that gets really dull. Narrative risk really, really matters. On we go. Question number five, a question from TikTok. Ugh. At what reading level should a YA book be written? Now, these numbers are not hard and fast. These numbers, much like we talked about with the first question, are, are not a thing everybody agrees on. But generally, a YA book should be written for a YA reader. Now, from a consumer standpoint, the majority of YA is read by women over the age of 20. Why? A number of factors, most of them having to do with capitalism and marketing. The other thing being uh, trope construction. They, they just appeal to that, that bracket of humans, uh, and it makes for very popular, easy content. It's... A dense read, it's often a dense read, but it doesn't need to be. But it allows them to get into just general, what do they like and what do they don't like content, as opposed to like heavier thematic construction. However, YA is aimed at young adult humans. So young adult human is generally defined to be anywhere from about 11 to 17 the, the tween to the teen years, 
You can even argue that it scales up from 11 to 20. Let me know if I, I, I moved my microphone. Let me know if the audio goes kerflui. But you're aiming for 11 to 20 as a reader. One of the problems YA authors have is that they don't aim for an 11 to 20-year-old reader. That does not mean they have to capture the 11 to 20-year-old experience. That's super helpful and super ideal. But from a written perspective, you don't have to write overly simplistic sentences because you don't think an 11-year-old's going to understand what two commas or a semicolon is doing in a sentence. A problem YA authors often have is that they write for their audience, for their readership, as opposed to writing for the story. So if you know that your story is being read predominantly by women 25 to 30, you are going to write situations and scenarios that appeal to some more fantastic segment of them. Oh my God, this guy is so dreamy. Here is a love triangle. That guy has stubble and abs and that one is brooding and has some kind of trauma. Whereas the average 14-year-old is going to have to do a lot more projection to get there. You want to aim your YA book in the late teen years to sort of split the difference between sentence complexity, which is definitely a factor, but also in terms of tone and plot and pace. You don't have to shrink down. A YA novel isn't an adult novel boiled down. It's not cut short. It's not overly simplified. It's a different animal. It's a different thing. And by aiming your uh, scope, your field of view towards a tween to teen audience, understanding that part of their perspective as readers is going to give you boundaries on the kind of story you can or can't tell independent from the complexity of how you word it, the words on the page, the punctuation and all that is going to make your writing a lot more appealing beyond its ability to be hacked into content by a variety of people where blank reads books shows up on YouTube. Aim your YA for a young adult and go from there. doesn't matter their gender, their identity, their their lack of identity, their position anywhere else. It's, it's an age thing. Give that a try. On we go. Question number six. More readery questions. What do you do when your ideal reader and your actual reader don't match up? Okay, this happens a lot. Here's what we're talking about. A lot of marketing advice and a lot of marketing strategy deals with this concept of an ideal reader. When you close your eyes and you think about your book, what sort of human is the person who loves, loves, loves your book and immediately runs out and buys it and also tells their friends because their friends will love, love, love the book too. And some marketing strategists will tell you to come up with a whole dossier for your ideal reader. What's their name? How old are they? Where do they live? Do they go to school? What do they like to buy? What do they like to do in their off hours? Do they have pets? What color do they paint their toenails? What kind of car do they drive? 
Do they like whatever television show you happen to like? Why do they like it? And basically spend your time dicking around, making another human up in an imaginative exercise. The ideal reader is perfect. The ideal reader is a useful tool for sort of kind of aiming your story, sort of kind of aiming your marketing so you know that you're a good fit, that there is somebody out there who would like your work. But beyond that, it's a masturbatory exercise. It's just sort of, it's just a thing you do. Your actual reader is the reader you discover you have based on sales data. People buying your book, people clicking your link, people checking out your channel, people downloading your podcast. They're doing whatever they're doing. Most metrics, or at least the metrics that are, you know, good, will will track that sort of information. When your ideal reader and your actual reader don't match, like in your head, let's say, you believe you're writing to people of all gender identities from the age of 45 and up. And it turns out that you're really popular in the 20 to 25 space for, I don't know, um, LGBTQ plus people who flunked flunked out of college. I don't know. That just sounds like a group of humans. I know they exist. So um, when your ideal reader and your actual reader don't meet up, the first thing an author is probably going to do is feel really stupid. Because they've planned and they've tried to aim for one group and they can't get there. So they must be doing something wrong. And they are correct in the sense that something is wrong, but it's not necessarily their effort that's wrong. Because maybe they're aiming in the wrong place. Maybe their target is off. Before you start hacking through and chopping up and rewriting and beating yourself up with your manuscript, trying to make it fit this group, I've got this peg and there's a hole I'm trying to get it in. I better take the peg apart to make it fit the hole I want. Consider changing holes. Consider that your actual reader seems to be liking your book more than the made-up person you made up. So maybe your actual reader should be where you put the thrust the eggs in your basket the you know that's where you should pay attention because those are the humans actually doing it and reducing that uh what's the word i want to use reducing your expectation to some degree oh i thought i was writing for you know men 30 to 35 but instead i'm writing for uh i don't know women 18 to 30 Consider changing holes is the name of your sex tape. You know that that um, that's a good title. That's a really good title. Shit, that's really good. But yes, you you want to make sure that you are aiming more to your actual reader than you are your ideal reader. That doesn't mean you're automatically always going to be wrong with your ideal reader. <clears throat> Sometimes this will line up nicely. But you've got to be willing to not carve that ideal reader into stone and make them permanent. You can bend and move. Now, if your actual reader is somebody you absolutely don't want to be popular with, for whatever reason, um, you can change the way you market to reach your ideal reader more effectively. Like, if you if you don't want to write to a predominantly male audience or a male-identifying audience, there are things you can do to change your marketing to to not attract them as much as you are. 
And you want to change the marketing before you change the manuscript because the marketing is a hell of a lot easier to change than the manuscript because the marketing is smaller. Whereas going and immediately changing the manuscript is sort of like when people are writing query letters and they get rejected. Instead of changing the query, they change the manuscript. Change the query first. Change the marketing first. Change the pitch first. And then if changing that a few times and figuring that out doesn't bring people or the people you want you know, to the space for your work, then consider that maybe how you're writing it, the construction of it, not so much the idea, but the approach for it because the idea doesn't have innate attraction ability. The idea is more just an idea and it's how you're laying it out on the page that brings people to or does not bring people to it. So change your ideal reader before you change your actual reader and then get into fiddling with the bells and whistles to get things done. Now I'm going to press this button and we're going to go over to yet another questions page and we're going to see if the audio drops out. I'm going to know on my end if it does because the little green thing on my screen is going to disappear and if it does, I'm going to try to put it back. So hang on, let's just see what happens. We're learning together. No, see, it's still there. So in theory, you're still hearing me. And while I ask you, hey, does anybody have any questions? Yes, it works. Because I didn't delete it from the last one. I know now for next week to change it. What are my thoughts on the Apple Vision Pro? Is that the VR headset thing? My thoughts on any of those VR headsets, whether it's the Meta one or the Apple Vision Pro, I have glasses. I wear them all the time. I no longer do contacts because when I had contacts, I'd get constant pink eye no matter how vigilant I was about cleaning them. Um, and all those VR things, like even with their special like foam rubber doodads or their their extenders or whatnot, I, I just worry... I'm going to smush my glasses into my face and I can't see without glasses. Like I got to put that screen about an inch from my face in order to see anything. So I've, I've always been sort of put off by the idea of VR glasses to say nothing of the fact that uh, your inner ear and VR are not supposed to hang out together because your brain does not process the sense of movement without physical movement very easily. I like the idea, the novel concept of it. The idea of a, sort of a heads-up display for your eyes, I think, is great. I I think the idea of turning things into more haptics and gestures is ideal for accessibility and for just cool future shit. I think that's awesome. Uh, of course, all my other complaints about things like corporations and capitalism apply. It's overpriced. If the product was that good, they should make it universal and either give it away for free or make it so dirt cheap that everybody can just put one in their pocket. And their idea of profit as a dividing line between have and have not is a useless, antiquated view of, of classism in existence. But it it sounds nice. I like all the commercials. Um, they always seem to have fairly decent looking people doing fairly cool looking things without anybody ever stopping to wonder why a random person is in their living room, just gesturing in space and moving their head around. No one ever stops to go. That looks goofy. 
but everybody seems to be having a good time. Beyond that, um, the usual Apple questions apply. What about battery life? What about forced obsolescence? I think if it were... I think if it were less of a headset and more of a, a visual adaptive, like, remember Google Glass? Like, if we sorted that shit out and you could just get prescription lenses like that, I think that's way better. I like that idea better than, I'm going to strap this weird, you know, Viewmaster from my childhood to my face. And I certainly prefer that idea to, I'm going to let someone put a USB-C port in my skull because that's, that's just every level of horrifying but yeah those are my apple vision pro thoughts i know nothing about the content i know nothing about like i'm gonna wear this to go to work nobody wants to go to work why would strapping on this extra device suddenly incentivize you know work and i have really like strange questions about that whole metaverse concept of like you put this thing on and then you're supposed to exist in this virtual space as an avatar, but you've got a physical body. Your physical body has needs, whether they are, you know, digestive and fueling or excretory. You're going to have to move that body at some point as as virtually cool as it might be to have like little cartoony hands manipulate little invisible things um at some point you're going to need a glass of water at some point you're going to need to move to prevent you know atrophy they never seem to tackle those questions they never seem to bring that stuff up everybody wants to jump from like we strap in and we go to ready player one or we plug in and we, we suddenly go to the matrix but not like not like the part where we're naked in goo but more the part where we're just all cool, listening to a cool soundtrack, doing cool person stuff, finger guns. It's, yeah, we only gloss over the the uncomfortable stuff and talk about the good stuff. Any other questions? That's a really good one. I wasn't expecting to have as many particular thoughts as I did. Go me. Questions, though? Yes, no? Shall we move on? Let's. Question seven. Should a story's central conflict be in its plot or its character arc? I think Sassy John and VR would be epic. Now, hang on a minute. How many times in in this existence have I ever been thought of as sassy? I don't consider myself sassy. I don't think I've been sassy while I'm sober. It's interesting, though. I think a VR version of me would curse a lot. I think there'd be a lot of different terms of service violations, or at least I'd want there to be because terms of service are stupid. But, uh, yeah, I think the idea of it I like more than the doing of it. But I'm going to answer this other question because it's philosophical and chewy. Should a story's central conflict be in its plot or be in its character arc? This is the sort of question that like a freshman in college gets or a sophomore in college gets. And if your first move isn't to immediately become unsober and try to answer it, you've missed 
a very fun boat. This is totally a sort of like deep stoner or I'm 14 and this is heavy kind of question because it doesn't matter where you put it. It just needs to be in one of those things. If your central conflict is in a plot, if you're plot heavy or plot dominant, that's what happens when your central conflict is in your plot. You are saying that the plot and its urgency or stakes or danger level is more important than seeing the characters grow. That doesn't mean they won't grow. It just means that that growth is taking a backseat to this other greater problem that everybody's dealing with. That doesn't make the book bad. It just makes it different than a book that is primarily facing or tracking a character changing and growing over time. There's still a plot. You still get plenty of plot, but more important than the specifics of this one-time plot, you are watching the character move forward in their own journey. Here are some examples. Mission Impossible movies tend to be plot-driven because they're about missions. It's in the title. But in the same sort of espionage spy thriller that Mission Impossible is, if we swing to a character perspective, we're doing Jason Bourne. The Bourne trilogy, even that shitty one with Jeremy Renner, is character-based. And the plot is pretty incidental. It's, it's specific to it, but most people don't remember that Carl Urban is the bad guy in the second Bourne movie. Or that in the fourth Bourne movie... It's the bad guy from Ocean's 12, only much older. And you become aware that everybody's older in that movie. The, the point is there's no one right place for where the conflict needs to be. You just need to have it either in your plot or your character arc because you'll be aware that when you put the central conflict, the biggest deal, the most important stuff, it's not like, a hundred percent of the conflict is going there and there's zero everywhere else. It's just that you're going to predominantly put a spotlight on one or the other. That's what that means. There is no right question. Sorry, college freshman. It it's one is not better than the other. I have a preference because I'm a human, but it doesn't mean that just because I prefer character driven story over plot driven story, it doesn't mean that plot driven story sucks. I just like character-driven story better. That's how I engage with media. That's just me. Other people do it different. That's totally fine. On we go. To question eight. How can pacing sort itself out if the chapters and scenes aren't all the same size? I've talked about this. I've talked about this with clients. I've talked about this in other spots. I think there was even a podcast about this at some point. Here's the problem with this point of view. Uniformity and homogeneity is not the point. And that's a publishing thing. That's where that decision comes from. Why do chapters have to be the same size? Why, do, why does everything have to sort of look more or less the same? It's a publishing thing. Why is it a publishing thing? Because when everything is more or less the same size, we know how much it's going to cost. If a chapter is only or every chapter I should say is five pages and I know I have X number of chapters, then I know how many pieces of paper it's going to be. And if I know how many pieces of paper it's going to be, or if I know how many words in paper it's going to be, I know how much I'm going to spend to produce this product. 
And if I know how much it's going to cost me for one book, I can figure out the weight and the overall total number of books to do this print run. So I know how much money to spend. That's where that decision comes from. It is not a narrative decision. It's a production decision. But traditional publishing turns it, metamorphoses, metamorphoses, alters, transforms it into a narrative decision by telling you that things should be the same to keep the reader engaged. And that's nonsense because the reader can be engaged with a one-page chapter or a four-page chapter or a 10-page chapter or a 30-page chapter because it's not about the number of pages. It's not about the number of paragraphs. It's not about the number of words. It's not even about the number of scenes. It's about what happens in them. Whether it takes you a long time or a short time to do it to get it across to the reader doesn't matter. What matters is when they're there, when they're reading it, when they're engaged, how, how riveted are they? Pacing will sort itself out. Pacing is a thing that much like riding a bike and walking or running or chewing, you don't really have to stop and think about it while you're doing it once you get started. It does sort itself out because you're relying on engagement and the reader's persistence in the action of reading and imagining. So, yeah, it's not about the fact that everything is five pages and I know exactly when I will turn the page and turn the page and go to the next chapter. You're not measuring page turn. You're measuring or or trying to quantify, not even measure, but you're trying to quantify how much people want to keep reading. And no matter the size, they either do want to keep reading or they don't. This is one of those things where you don't want to overthink it, where you just want to have some trust and confidence that my story is going along really well. And as long as you don't absolutely throw a wrench in the works and overcomplicate scenes with consequences or shoehorn stuff in because, oh my God, I forgot about this character and they need a subplot. As long as you don't purposefully deviate too far away from whatever else is going on relative to the time it's happening, your pacing is going to probably be all right. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect and that doesn't mean you shouldn't care about it, but it does mean you don't have to micromanage it. You can adjust pacing by shortening scenes, by cutting lines of dialogue, by abbreviating sentences, by eliminating sentences. And that will adjust pacing in the short term. But if you think that cutting a sentence in chapter two is going to change the way the book rolls out 35 chapters from now, you either have a very inflated sense of how your writing is, or you have an overly expanded sense of how interdependent everything is. The amount of criticality, the amount of fragility your story would have to have that a sentence change on page five is going to butterfly affect us 500 pages later is ludicrous. And it's it's really just tipping you at the precipice of, well, I, I, I have to be careful, but I have to go faster and I need to be prudent and I need to worry. And you just don't need to. It's not about size. It's about utility. How well are you getting the story across? If you're doing okay, who gives a shit about how much size it is? In the books you like to read, listeners, whether you were listening in the podcast or hanging out in chat or watching this on YouTube in the future, when you sit down to read or listen to an audiobook or whatever, do you stop and think about the last time you turned a page or the last time there was a chapter heading? 
Does that really come into your thought other than I know where to put my bookmark or I'm only going to read the rest of this chapter tonight before I go to bed? But do you sit there and track? I've been doing this five times. I've changed pages five. No, I hope not because that's that's a thing. You just don't like you don't have to designate brain space for that. Don't don't make this more than it is. It's just pacing. It does really sort itself out. On we go. Question nine. Sort of related to our series question from earlier. How can I carry an antagonist over from one book to a later book in the series without saying somehow Palpatine returned? Now, I'm going to confess a production thing. If we were doing this with the software that makes my microphone sound like shit, I do have the MP3 of Oscar Isaac saying somehow Palpatine returned and him sounding like it's the dumbest fucking thing in the world because it is. But um, this is a real like common problem. It's real common. So how do we fix it? How do we deal with this? Item number one, we need to make sure that when we take care of the protagonist in that first book, whatever that first book is, let's say it's the bad guy from book two and they're coming back in book five. When we, when we resolve the issue in book two, where we take that antagonist away, we have to clarify that they're not permanently gone. We don't need to have a scene where they bust out of prison once, once they are escorted away, but we need to make it apparent in the world, not necessarily in that moment, but in the world that, oh yeah, a guy like that could get out of jail. In the same way that in like comic books, we always seem to throw villains in prisons, but then within five issues, oh, they're out. And we never really question it. We just know they're out. So when you resolve that first book where the antagonist makes their original appearance, make sure that you've created for yourself in the story and in your world building some way of them getting out. You don't need to make that apparent to the reader. You can, but it's not like mission critical that you know or that the reader know oh what all they need to do is you know if they just bribe a guard the guard will swipe the card and allow them to escape out the hallway or something like you don't need to show the escape you can you can super show the escape in that later book but initially when you end the antagonist's first appearance you just need to give the the sense of finality but keeping in mind while it appears final to the reader you know you have plans so that when we jump over here to the later book, all of a sudden you have the option of exploring those plans, of saying that thing. Because now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, the villain can monologue and go, when I escaped out of that prison you sent me to, dot, 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 you, you could have a scene like that. That's fine. You don't have to just spontaneously bring the villain back. You don't have to lazily bring them back. You shouldn't be lazy or thoughtless or careless about this because it's going to suck all the air out of the room. When all of a sudden, ta-da, here's our villain for no reason other than our story needs a villain, the first thing the reader's going to do is question how this is narratively possible. That doesn't mean you need to provide a definite flashback as to how they got out of prison, but you need a more substantial reason than somehow they did, which is your job. You need to think about how 
Palpatine returned, but not somehow. If, for example, let's let's just cover Star Wars. How would Star Wars do this? We threw Palpatine down a space hole, ending the trilogy, right? How would we make this work? In the next movie, in The Force Awakens, we make the cloning technology more apparent, not necessarily with Palpatine in tanks yet, but we at least make the reader or the audience aware, hey, cloning is a thing that happens in Star Wars, you guys. So that in, you know, that's movie nine. Then we get to movie 10. We mention cloning some more, but we, we you know, clarify it or expand it and say that anybody can use it. It's not just for soldiers anymore. So we're, we're laying a breadcrumb trail. We're not overtly saying, hey, it's Palpatine, it's Palpatine, it's Palpatine. But we're at least laying a breadcrumb trail. And then when we get to, you know, movie nine or whatever it is, all of a sudden, poof, here's Palpatine. Here's the evidence of Palpatine in, in cloning tubes. We connect all our dots in our series. Holy shit, Palpatine returned. Not somehow. It's because he used cloning technology that the story has already substantiated. It's the somehow that's the issue, not the return issue. Return is fine. It's a story. Who gives a shit? The weakness there with him returning is that we used his death catastrophically to create a redemption arc. It does undercut your redemption arc if the death doesn't stay dead. It's worth considering, but that's how you would do it. On we go. Does anybody have questions about anything? Yes, no, it's fine. I'm just sitting here drinking water. Keep going. Let's keep going. Question 10. You have a podcast. I do. John Helps You Write Better, available wherever you get your podcasts. You write at least one newsletter. I do, whether it's on Substack or go over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Uh, you answer questions for free. I'm doing that right now. You run a writing group. Yes, it's available every Wednesday. You can jump on Patreon for details. And you put out long recordings all the time. I do, uh, particularly on Patreon. Why don't more writing experts do what you're doing? Huh. Remember those previous comments I made about people giving writing advice and how sometimes they they don't really want to give writing advice. They just want your credit card information so they can sell you things to make you feel bad. So they sell you more things so that you keep chasing this idea that they'll just hand you the right thing one day and it's all your fault. Remember that? Why don't more writing experts do all those things? I, you'd have to ask them. In fact, I want you to go ask them. They're experts. So they say, why aren't they doing more for free? Why aren't they busier? Why do they only seem to come around when they've got a new training to sell you? When they've got a new book or a new project or a new, you know, quick and easy thing that you can sign up for right away. Why don't we ask if the emperor has any clothes on? Why don't we question why they do this? Because if they're an expert, 
and they can give you great writing advice, do it. Go get it. Get help from anybody. Anybody. If they can help you, you don't have to stay by me. I'm not asking you to drink the flavor aid. We don't have to move to Guyana and see what happens next. You go where you need to go to talk to who you need to talk to to get the help you need to accomplish your goals. That's what I want. I want you to write better. It does not have to be slavishly you know, shackled to me. But when I stop and look at what all these other people are doing, and I look at what I'm doing, I'm doing something very different than what they're doing. They have an awful lot of products, and they really love to charge like a lot for stuff I've answered questions about. Now, that doesn't mean my answer is better than their answer. Their answer might be better because they're going to spend an hour and change on one question, whereas I'm answering, you know, 13 today. But at the same time, I'm not asking for your credit card. I mean, you're welcome to support me however you want. You're welcome to subscribe. You're welcome to click the button, click the bell, do all the algorithmic-y things. But I don't, I don't want that to be the first sort of hurdle you have to climb with me. I want you to write better. That's important to me. I want you to feel motivated and encouraged and educated. I want you to care about art. And I want you to put art really kind of ahead of nearly everything else because you're doing this thing and it's important to you and you're taking it seriously, hopefully. And it's going to lead you to be a better creative down the road because if you learn how to not to make the mistakes you're making now, you can continue to not make them in the future. You don't always have to come running back for one more dose of like, here's a $49 Zoom thing. Uh, you, you're welcome. You can always come back, but it it's not about trying to get you hooked on some kind of drug. I'm not trying to like, the first one's for free and then you got to pay. I live that life. It sucks because you always feel inadequate that way. You always feel like somebody's holding it back from you and you have to be good enough or figure something out in order to prove yourself worthy of receiving the information. I have no patience for that anymore. I'm old and tired a lot. So these experts, I'm making very big air quotes that are possibly getting a hernia from all the lifting they're doing. These experts, maybe they're not experts. Maybe they're experts at soliciting your credit card information. Maybe they're experts at making you feel desperate. Maybe they're experts at parting you from your money. Maybe they're experts in convincing you that it can't possibly be any good if you're not paying for it because they'll say something like, you get what you pay for. Okay, that's fine. I have a free half-hour coaching on my website, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. You can come ask me any question you want. Here are some sample questions people have asked me in that 30 minutes. Hey, how do I get started writing this book? Can I get published within two years? How do I write XYZ kind of book? How do I make this happen? How do I, what do I do if my, my wife, my partner, or my spouse wants to be a better writer? How do I support them? Why can't information be accessible to everyone? Why does information, especially expert information, have to come with this big hoop of a giant-ass price tag in order to validate that it's good information. Price shouldn't be a barrier. Price should be an incentive. 
Because if it's really good, if I can give you really good information and it's at a reasonable price, I think you'll come back for more as long as I stay at that reasonable price because that's more accessible to you and it's more value than the dollar amount you've attached to it. My model has always been, I want to give you more than what you pay for. If a thing is five bucks, I want to give you 10 or 20 or $30 worth for your five bucks. It makes me feel good. It helps you. Everything improves that way. That doesn't, you know, that I guess in some business tech bro way, you know, keeps $30 out of my pocket, but I don't give a shit. I want to make sure that you, wherever you are, whoever you are doing, whatever you're doing is writing the best you can for a reasonable sum of money that allows me to buy cat food or meds or root beer or whatever. And I understand that in order to do that the way I want to the degree I want, I got to do a podcast and newsletters and a writing group and long form recordings. But I also really, really love those things. Some things I love more than others. I love talking to this microphone. I love talking into this microphone and I am slowly losing my love for long form writing newsletters. It's tedious. It's not bad. I just don't like it as much as I used to. Things change, tastes change, habits change, but I love doing all the stuff I do. Some of it's better than something else for loads of different reasons, but I love doing what I do. I don't know why more people aren't doing this. I'm not saying this is the model. Clearly, they're more successful. One of them literally on Twitter today talked about the new car. They just bought their spouse. I would love to be able to do that for somebody. But, like, that's just not how I'm doing things. I like the audience I've built. I like the attitude I have. I like the the endeavors those people undertake. That matters to me. I like being able to look at the 45 people I deal with on a regular basis and see their growth. That matters to me more than I have a large bank account. I would love a bank account. I would love a large bank account. I would love a bank account where I don't have to worry about like, oh shit, do I have to like sneak out of the house later and then like go dumpster dive in order to get some extra ground beef? Maybe I do. I would like to not have to do that anymore. But if in order for in order to do that, if I have to sacrifice all these other considerations, if I have to suddenly start charging, or if I could just wear a pair of gloves and go late to a grocery store and just get stuff before they throw it out, I'll go stand out in the fucking cold because I'll sleep better at night knowing I didn't inflate a price tag just to tell somebody, hey, write a sentence like this, not like that, and here's why. But that's just me. If you disagree with the strategy, that's fine. You're welcome to. Go find another expert. I am curious, though, if you can find another expert who's been doing this since 1997 and done it to the degree I've done it. If you have, great. Go find them and let me know about them. I would love to put them, you know, to put them on a pedestal and show them off. But I'm pretty sure a lot of the people who are experts didn't start in 97. A few of them weren't even born in 97. So I leave it to you to make the decisions about where you go to get the help you need. As always, all I want to do is make you think. Question 11. I need a mouthful of water. Hang on, hang on, hang on.
All right, question 11. Do I really need a newsletter if I have no audience? Or do I get an audience by having a newsletter? Welcome to a chicken-egg argument. Here we go. If you have no audience, like zero audience, I don't just mean like five people on Discord promise to totally buy your book one day. I mean like you don't have an audience. You're just writing and you'll figure that shit out later. If you don't have an audience, you don't need a newsletter. Period. Done. End of sentence. Why? Because the function of a newsletter is to inform your current audience about an opportunity or about stuff that they otherwise don't know. And if you don't have an audience, you don't need to tell anybody about the things you're doing because there's nobody there to hear you. If you have a newsletter, it's not going to spontaneously grow an audience just by having one. I own, you know, dress clothes. That doesn't mean I spontaneously get invited to dinner parties. It just doesn't work that way. The point is, the idea of it is, the newsletter is there to inform an audience that grows from other means other than the newsletter. The newsletter is just, once we corral everybody, once we get them in a group, then the newsletter informs them. But there are other things we do to get them in that corral. We put them in a website. We give them a freebie. We give them a sales funnel. We just... Tell them to go check us out on social media. And by the way, we also mentioned we have one. But we don't start a newsletter from scratch and grow the audience that way unless, because there's always going to be a caveat, unless we're using that newsletter as the thing that we're growing with. Like if we treat a newsletter more like a blog. Remember blogs? Yeah, they're still a thing, only now mostly they're newsletters. If we use our newsletters the way we used to use our blog posts, where we are just constantly generating the content in newsletter form on the regular, and then we share that newsletter or make it available to many people, we can grow an audience that way. However, if you are doing this because, oh, by the way, I also write books that are independent and separate from the newsletter, you're going to struggle to sort of smooth out and link together those two things. If you have no audience, you don't need a newsletter. If you're going to use your newsletter to develop that audience, you might find that, oh, by the way, I have this book, is a tough sell, at least initially, because if you're writing about, if your book is, I don't know, a high fantasy you know, epic quest, but your newsletter has so often been like, I played a video game this week, uh, it's, it's not going to connect well. Really, truly, most authors who are just authors, who are authors first and marketers second, or authors first and publishers and marketers a distant fifth, their newsletter is there to inform the readership that's already interested in them about stuff that's happening. If you don't have that audience coming in from multiple original other places, the newsletter is not going to do you any good. And if you're not interested in growing your audience that way, because there's other ways to grow an audience. You can get a podcast. You can start streaming. You can do a ton of other stuff. You don't need a newsletter. It's just a different tool in the toolbox you might use to do certain stuff. That's all that is. You don't have to have one. Question 12. Am I a brand or am I an author or am I a writer? 
Yes. You can be any one of those things. They're each going to carry different considerations, though. They're each going to be different important things. You're a writer because you write, period. Doesn't matter the publishing status. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you write. Doesn't matter how far you are. Doesn't matter how many times you've stopped or started or restarted or anything like that. A writer is a person engaged in the act of writing at all. Not even consistently. Just ever. That's a writer. You can be one of those people. You can be one and take a break and come back. You can be one consistently. Whatever. Just do the verb and you're there. An author, for my money is a writer with a goal, publication, distribution of story or idea to other people. So that's a writer doing something, going in a direction with something. Publication status, honestly, to me, doesn't matter. Some people will make a distinction and go, you are a writer until you're published and then you become an author. But I think that's gatekeeping. I think that's unnecessary. I think that's kind of like a needless... You know, no girls allowed in our clubhouse kind of vibe that we, we just doesn't matter. But I think what separates them is not the publication status, but the publication effort. A writer writes, but an author is a writer who tries to get published or who is published. Which steps us out even further into brand. Now, I cannot stand. I, I am. I am irritated in ways I can't possibly express on a platform with a terms of service like Twitch. I I can't begin to describe how much I dislike the idea of brand or content as sort of the, the way we succeed now. Um, Your brands are labels on stuff for me. Here is a brand of shoe, a brand of t-shirt because like a a mark on a cow that's a brand it's a it's a signifier or label on top of or adjacent to this other thing a brand of t-shirt is a t-shirt with an identifier to me when we talk about you being a brand or this being good for my brand i think it's dehumanizing i think that's what capitalism wants us to be, to not see ourselves as human because once we detach from that, we can strip away things like compassion and care and intellect, and we can focus more on competition and obstacle overcoming and uh, productivity and, and, and being a good cog in the machine. Brands aren't humans. Now, maybe you look at this and go, no, it's totally my brand. I'm on brand. This is my writing era or however you want to phrase that, please let me know if I use that phrase correctly. I heard it last night. I want to make sure I'm using it right. But um, I, I don't think you're a brand. I think you're a person doing stuff. So whether you are an author or a writer, I think that's what you are. And I think a brand is what you have in the same way that my socks are of a brand or my T-shirt has a tag. Thinking of yourself as a brand too often disconnects us from the things that make us authors and writers because we end up making decisions that have more unintended and unknown consequences than if we just focus on, I make books 
I write the best stories I can. I get up every day and try to have the best day I can while helping somebody else have the best day they can. I try to make the world slightly better today than I did yesterday. Those are the behaviors and actions of, of a human. Brands lack humanity. So for me, I'm always going to think of you as an author or a writer who has a brand. But I don't think you are a brand. And now, our last question of the day. Question 13. How do I set more reasonable goals for my writing if I don't know what I should work on? Now, there's an obvious thing here, sort of a a pre-step to this question of, hey, you know, you should probably figure out what you need to work on so that you can set goals to it. Because if, if you just stabbing around in the dark about, well, I don't know what I should work on. You're going to struggle to work on it because you, you, you're, again, running around in the dark. But if you don't know what you should work on or you haven't yet made the attempt to find out, your goals should be small and they should be practical and they should be organized. So if you don't know the specifics of where you need to put your energy and time, take steps in every direction, knowing full well that you're going to take more time than if you were focused. So work a little on plot, work a little on character, work a little on tone, work a little on dialogue, work a little bit on discipline, work a little bit on marketing or audience growing. You're going to, you know, put fuel or put, let's use eggs in baskets. You're going to put an egg or two in every basket all the time. And you will over time improve in these things but it's slower progress and it's possible that you don't need to put eggs in some of those baskets, whereas other baskets are screaming for eggs. In the absence of knowing concretely what to work on, you are holding yourself back, flat out. You are making this harder on yourself. Now, chances are people hold themselves back from finding out what they should work on because they're afraid the answer is going to be everything or that they should quit or that they're wasting their time, which is generally not the case. Very rarely in, in my life have I ever seen somebody who flat out should not be writing. I can think of like one person, two people maybe, who's talents were clearly not in writing but they were creative all the same but by and large it's fear that keeps us from discovering something more specific because that with that fear comes a risk of information we don't want or feelings we're not really feeling prepared to have you should find out what you need to work on because you'll you'll not make the progress to the degree you want without knowing if you kind of spin in a circle and just a little bit here and a little bit there all the way around, but you really find out that you've been spending time on dialogue when your dialogue was fine to begin with, it's not that you wasted time. Don't look at it in terms of this finite commodity. It's just that you were putting effort into a thing you were already doing finite, thinking it wasn't good enough. You were in your own way to some degree. But goal setting in a more reasonable way, regardless of whether or not you know to work on it, comes down to the idea of what's my end goal, like my end result that I want, 
and how can I get there in ways that make me feel like I'm accomplishing something rather than just taking big swings and then talking a lot about it. When most people set goals, they set these really high bars, like way out in the distance. I'm going to publish. I'm going to publish five books. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And they they don't know the, the 10, 30, 40, 60, 12, whatever steps from where they're at to where they want to go. And they figure they'll discover them as they go, and they have confidence from other influences or sources to tell them how hard or easy they can expect it to be. And sometimes they're well-informed about that, and sometimes they're not, and you just sort of shrug and give it a try. When you're setting a goal, you want to set a goal that you can partially accomplish to some degree so you can feel like, yeah, I'm making a difference, I'm doing it. But also, it's just at the edge of that difficulty as well. Because if you're not taking your goal just to the end of your comfort zone and just a little bit beyond, you're not really growing. Now, there's going to be times where the goals you need to accomplish are things well within your ability. They just need to happen. You've done them a million times. You're going to keep doing them a million times. They're just part and parcel of this whole thing, like pressing the space bar. You don't have to stop and think about it. You just know to do it. You're going to keep doing it. you got to do a lot of it. And other times that's going to be writing dialogue or writing scenes with horses or coming up with titles or this, that, or the other stuff you've done before that you're going to keep doing. There's not really a goal there other than you just have to accomplish it. But when we're setting goals for new things in new directions, whatever they might be, you've got to go right to the edge of that comfort zone. And the only way you're growing any further is by taking a step out of that zone. How big that step you take is up to you, your energy level, how you're feeling, mental health, the time, the schedule, the freedom, the pressure you put on yourself, all these different factors. But you've got to go toes up to that line first and then grow. And if you don't know where to go and you don't know what to work on, that progress to the edge of the comfort zone and beyond is going to be slower than if you knew specifically, okay, I'm going to work on X and then Y and then Z. And if you're still not sure what to work on, an approach where you're just doing X, then Y, then Z is functionally useful, but again, it's going to be slower. It should not, it's scary, but should not be too difficult to ask for help to figure out what you should work on. I do it all the time. I did it yesterday for six people. It's just straight up, hey, John, what am I good at? What works? What am I doing right here? Here's my piece. Read it. Tell me what's going well. Tell me what's not. I did. Half hours, one here, one there, one there, one there, one there. I had other clients. I had other stuff to do. But the point was, it was a conversation. It took enormous courage, enormous courage for these people to do that stuff. But they did it. That really matters. Matters to me anyway. But if you don't know what to work on and you don't really know what to do, then yeah, you're going to struggle and you're going to spin your wheels and you're going to get frustrated. So if that's you and you're not quite ready to find out because you're worried about the answer, I don't really think it's fair to get frustrated that it's taking so long. It's it's something you're doing of your own design. You're making it happen. You can find out. By the way, if you're somebody who's like, I would love to know what I'm doing right and wrong, head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com, click the button for a free appointment. I'll happily tell you what you're doing right and wrong and give you a plan for free on what you can do next for free, really. It's worth it. 
Give it a shot. Okay. I, I see there is an ad break that ends in 20-something seconds. So I'm going to stick more water in my face, and then we're going to press the button. Some great questions today. Truly great questions. Very pleased about that. And hopefully all the recording is going well. Okay. <clears throat> Shall we press the button? We're just about done. All right. One, two, yep, here we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? This was really good. Very pleased. Deeply satisfied by this. Go me. Shall we get out of here? Go to that sweet, sweet outro with no music because I'm still working on that part. Yeah. Let's go to that sweet outro. So, thanks for being here. Thanks for checking this out. It was fantastic today. It made me very happy. I'm so glad this worked out as well as it did. Thank you so much. Now, the next time I'm here, in your eyes and in your ears, is, where's my calendar? Is, let's see, today's the 23rd, seven days, the 30th. That'll be fun. But beyond that, uh, you can find out if I'm doing a workshop during the week or anything else by heading over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com and signing up for the free newsletter where every week I lay out the schedule for what you can expect and what's going on. If you liked this, if this was good for you today, if you enjoyed this, uh, you can always show your support by heading over to patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. You can also, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, like and subscribe and click the bell for notifications and do all the YouTube things that YouTubers tell you to do. Uh, and uh, you can, of course, get me in your ears nearly every day by looking for John helps you write better wherever you get your pods casted. So until next time, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much for your questions. Thanks for letting me talk about goal setting and writing and narrative risk and working out decent audio and all that good stuff. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See ya.